So we're finishing up John chapter 7 this week, and I want to start with uh, kind of come with me in your imagination and imagine whenever you got home today after uh, our, our worship gathering, you had a notarized note that said, hey, congratulations, you just inherited uh, $10 million from a long-lost relative that you didn't know just passed away. And you're like, are we playing Monopoly? What's going on? You know, that, that's, that's pretty spectacular. Or like, let's go negative with it and say you got another notarized note that said, and by the way, uh, your, the bank has called in the rest of the note on your house, and it's due within the next three days. And now you might see those two examples as pretty outlandish, as pretty crazy, maybe. It was like, hey, is this a game of Monopoly? Am I going bankrupt or anything like that? But here's the thing. The reality is this. If you got those two notarized notes, you might say that that's just silly and that's just crazy. That's, this is spam mail. How did they get my address? How does this always happen to me? But if it was notarized and filed and you could look up the people, the, 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 the reality would be this. It's too big of a claim for you to ignore it, right? $10 million, your notes due on your house in the next three days, that's too big of a claim to just say, let's throw this in the trash, let's rip this thing up. You're going to do a little bit of investigation, correct? You're going to do some investigation if those two things happen to you. And what we see here in this text, what we see here in John chapter 7, is the people of uh, the people uh, surrounding this feast, whenever they're engaging with Jesus, they're saying he's making too big of claims just to ignore. Uh, like whenever we see, whenever they see Jesus speaking, whenever they see Jesus teaching, what they see is, wow, he's making this, these enormous claims, these enormous claims about who he is and about who God is and how we are to relate to God that they're too big just to ignore. And so my question today is, is who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this man? Because in verse 12, and in, in, in all throughout the verses that Bree read to us, what do we see? We see that the crowds have different opinions about who he is. In verse 12, it says, oh, he's really a good man. And in verse 40, it says, no, he's a prophet, which is another way of saying he's a good religious man, right? Verse 20, some say that, no, he has a demon, right? And in verse 12, also, it says, no, he's a deceiver. He's leading the people astray. And in verse 41, say, no, I think this is the Christ. So which is it? Which is it? There is a division among them. This, that's what verse 43 says towards the end of this passage. So there was a division among the people over him. There was a division about the reality of who Jesus really was. And Jesus it, this, is, this is the objective truth that no matter who you are in this room, no matter who you are around the world, Jesus Christ of Nazareth presents you a problem. He presents you a problem. He demands so much based on his truth claims. What he, de what he declares about himself, you have to investigate. You cannot ignore. You cannot ignore how big of a claim this man makes. And I've, I've said this before. In, in, from this pulpit. And I, and I really believe it, that one of the, the, the tragedies of our cultural moment is that here in the West, we're becoming increasingly and increasingly bored with Jesus. Oh, he's just, oh, yeah, church, 
Jesus, you know, religion. Yeah, 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 we get it. Jesus is out there. I asked him into my heart. He forgives me, yada, yada. Now I just need, I need to learn, do I get, do I invest in crypto or do I not? You know, I need to learn, like, what's, what's my next thing that I need to be, be really serious about? And, and, like, we put Jesus over here in this box to where he's just boring to us. And he's not the central piece. But, but this is something that we cannot do with Jesus. His his truth claims about himself are too momentous to actually ignore. Too momentous not to have everything revolve around him. Not to have everything in the world revolve around him. And so the claims of Jesus demand this. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, that what you think about Jesus, it, it depends on heaven and hell. It depends on heaven and hell what you think about Jesus. And I, I, I got to think, I got to think that C.S. Lewis, who has a, a lot of golden nuggets of quotes in the, in the 20th century about Christianity, was thinking about this whenever, uh, was thinking about this passage whenever he gave this really golden nugget from mere Christianity. Let me just read it. Let me read it to, uh, to you. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, very British thing to say, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this is a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so we actually see those four things that C.S. Lewis brings up in our passage today. When the crowds are trying to engage with the, the magnitude of the claims that Jesus is teaching about himself. Number one, number one is he's just a good man. He's just a good man. Number two, that he is a deceiver that he's trying to deceive the people. Number three, that he's a lunatic or a devil or, or has a demon. Or number four, he is the Christ. So we're going to unpack these and we're going to see what do you say about Jesus and what is your life saying as you're engaging with him? What is the gravity of your life revolving, of, uh, revolving around? Is Jesus just a good man? Do you think he's crazy? Or is he the Christ that we have to revolve everything in our lives around? So, Let's look at the, the first thing. Was Jesus just a good man? Well, Lewis brings this up. Like, if he's just a good man, we have a wild problem because Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. And if, if someone claims to be God, this is repulsive to us. But yet at the same time, Jesus did all these miraculous signs. He did all these things that were absolutely wild and crazy. And the spreading of Christianity has spread in every culture all over the world. And so we have to engage with this. We have to engage with this. Is he just a good man as, as the scriptures uh, and the people attested to? Well, let's, see. let's look at this. Jesus, on multiple occasions, used the name Yahweh in referring to himself. 
Now, this was a big, stinking deal. This was a really big, stinking deal because the, the, the word Yahweh was hardly even spoken, wasn't even said by the Jewish people. They saw it to be irreverent. Let's not even say the name of Jesus because of the third commandment, right? Of the third commandment to, to honor and revere the name of God. And so they're like, let's not even say that. But multiple times in his ministry, he said, I am. I am. Uh, he, he said it whenever he calmed the storm. He said before Moses was, before Abraham was, I am. I am. So he claimed the name of God that was held in high revere to himself. How dare he? How dare he say something like that? And this brought shock and awe. And remember whenever he was, uh, whenever he was put on trial, whenever he was put on trial before uh, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, some of the Jewish counselors asked him, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And, look, and, and you know what he said? He goes, I am. He uses the exact same word. Ego I me, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a radical claim. This is the claim that, that, that C.S. Lewis was, says is on the level of saying that you are a poached egg. And multiple times, Jesus didn't just say that I am, but he would also talk in such a way as if everything in life was centered around him. It, it, it says this in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those that, that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Do you see what he's saying? He's just saying this to some of his disciples, just, uh, just offhanded, real fast. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've been sending you prophets, and you've been killing them. How dare he? He's saying, oh, the Lord, is this not God who's sending the prophets? He says, no, this is me who's standing right before you, this 30-year-old, this 33-year-old is standing before you and saying, I have been sending prophet after prophet after prophet to you, and yet you keep on killing them. Yet you keep on killing them. Is this just a good man? Look at the gravity of everything that he's saying. Uh, Jesus continually, uh, you know what he does? He, he continually just offers forgiveness of sins. All the time. We see this uh, in our call to worship even this morning. In Psalm 50. Uh, 51 it says against you and only you have I sinned and done evil in your sight and Jesus whenever he's forgiving sins you know what he's saying he's saying you have sinned against me whenever he's actually trying to uh, uh, heal people and forgive them he's saying your sins are all against me the maker in heaven and uh, the maker of heaven and earth the the claims of Jesus are so radical that ultimately this is what got him crucified Jesus said that I'm the way I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unless you hate your mother and father, your wife and children, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. These are the things that he keeps on talking about. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. What radical claims can we say that this is just a good moral teacher? Can we say, can we say that this is just a man that's out there that's trying to teach us a new form of morality that is centered around the golden rule. Whenever he's making claims like this, there's no way that this can just be a mere, mere good man. Imagine, imagine someone said, oh, I met someone and they were really awesome. I, I encourage you to go to lunch with them right after the service. Go, go to lunch with them. And let's just say for 
for the sake of the illustration, they're not here, all right? So you're not picking out who would have this type of egomaniac, uh, you know, like consciousness or whatever. But they, you're sitting across from them, you're like, man, they are really charming. They are really gregarious. And then all of a sudden they say, you know what? I'm God. I'm God. And uh, you need to bow down before me right here in this restaurant, and you need to worship me. And in fact, I think your eye has been watching that television screen over there in Bricktown a little bit too much. So I would like you to gouge that out of your face so that you can be wholly devoted to me. Imagine if one of your friends or one of your acquaintances said these things. How quickly would you gather the, the kids and like get in the car, back up, everyone stay behind me? This is a madman. This would be an absolute madman that would say these things. But yet, it's, it, it's a common sentiment to say, no, you know what, I like Jesus, I just don't like his claims to be God. It's like saying, Cody, I, 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 like, I like who you are, I just don't like that you're married to Stephanie. I was like, no, this is part of who I am. You cannot separate me. You cannot separate me from who I'm married to. You cannot separate the title of Christ from Jesus with his moral teachings. You cannot do this. He has not left this open to us. He has not left this claim open to us. So, could he just be a good moral teacher? I think not. I think not, but you have to decide for yourself. Are you going to walk with him and are you going to be okay with just saying, this is, who, this is who Jesus is. He's someone that gives me some of my morality and nothing else. The second thing that they look at is this, is he might be a deceiver and he might be a lunatic. He might be a deceiver and he might be uh, demon-possessed. In verse 12, it says that the people said, no, he's leading the people astray. This is what Jesus is doing. He's just, he's just leading the people astray. And then in verse 20, verse 20, it says, no, you have a demon they claim, Jesus is speaking, and they, someone cries out to him and says, no, you have a demon. You have a demon. And so he was either, the argument goes, self-deluded or personally deceived by being crazy or demon-possessed. And so let's ask this question. Is this credible based on what we know about Jesus' life? Is it credible that he is just a mastermind deceiver that has led a world religion for 2,000 years, or that he was possessed by a demon that gave him some type of insight to start this whole thing. It do, does this line up? Does this line up with ba based on what we know about Jesus? Well, look at what the officers said. The officers that were sent by the, the scribes and Pharisees to go arrest him. What did they say? What did they say whenever they were there to arrest Jesus and they stopped and they listened to him? They came back and they said, why didn't you bring him? Hey, we, we sent you to arrest him. Why didn't you bring him? Look what the officers say in verse 46. The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. It's like, have you heard him? Did you listen to his words? Did you see, did you see the twinkle in his eye? Did you see the power of which he communicated these things? No one's ever spoke like this man. There, there's no one that's ever been like Jesus. They were in awe, and they forgot why they were there, and they're like, oh. We're policemen that were supposed to be here, and I guess we should go back. <laughs> and they came back empty-handed because they were mesmerized by the majesty and the glory of Jesus. And listen, this isn't just what happens. 
This isn't just what happens whenever to these officers. This is what happens when Christianity goes in every single culture around the world. Every other religion, you have heard me say this a lot if you've been coming to Redeemer for a while. Every other religion, wherever it was founded, it typically stays geographically in that place. And so uh, you'll, see, you'll see Hinduism basically stay in India. The, 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 the vast concentration of those that are Hindu around the world are all in the exact same geographic location of where it was founded. Islam is exactly the same case. Now, they spread out across, across Africa very rapidly through conquest. However, but is, the concentration of Islam is those that you think, oh, this is in the Middle East, around Mecca, and around all the, all the countries that were dominated by, uh, by uh, the, the prophets of uh, Islam whenever they, they first started. Buddhism is the exact same way. Shintoism is almost exclusively in Japan because that's exactly where it started. However, Christianity is fundamentally different. Everywhere the gospel of Jesus goes, it transforms hearts. And people say, he was, he was the Christ. He was the, he was the Son of God who resurrected from the dead. And it transforms cultures no matter where it goes. And so it started in the Middle East. It went up to, it went up to Europe. It came across to the Americas. And in 2013, for the first time in human history, there was more Christians in the Southern Hemisphere than there were in the Northern Hemisphere. The, the gospel of Jesus transforms, every, transforms everyone no matter where it goes. It transforms cultures. It transforms peoples. It transforms kings. It, it, it transforms everything. It transforms even the brightest minds of a generation. Think of C.S. Lewis. Take C.S. Lewis, who, who was working at Oxford, was a devout atheist, hated the claims of Christ, and then became one of the, the greatest apologetics, uh, apologists uh, of human history. Uh, that he was completely transformed by who Jesus was. He went from atheist to born-again Christian who said that this man is the Son of God who resurrected from the dead. And it's still happening today. Some of you are following uh, different people within our culture that are, are, seem to be influential. Jordan Peterson seems to be one of those gentlemen. I've had conversations about um, his cultural impact for the last couple, of, uh, last couple of years, especially with the age of the Internet. And he's put on his lectures. Every time I try to listen to him, I just feel dumb. Like, yeah, I just feel like I, I don't get what he's saying. Do, do other people get what he's saying? But anyways... Uh, it might be for the, the, the PhDs in the room, uh, Jordan Peterson. But uh, this is what Jordan Peterson just said in a recent interview. Who I'm calling is close, is absolutely close to following Jesus. He says in a recent interview, and I quote, It's not that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the pre prerequisite for the manifestation of truth, which makes it far more true than just true. It's a whole different kind of truth. He's been studying the Bible and trying to lecture on it from a psychological perspective. And what is it doing? It's melting away his heart. It's melting away his heart. He's becoming, he's becoming enraptured by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And, and he's saying the Bible is the most true thing that has ever existed in, in human history. He hasn't professed Jesus yet, but just watch the news. Watch the news. And I, I guarantee you he's, he's getting close. This is what the gospel does. 
This is what the, the, the word of God does whenever, is it, does it make sense that this man, the words of this man is an idiot or a lunatic or possessed by a devil? He transforms everywhere that he goes. Everywhere that he goes. You might say, okay, he transforms everywhere, but that just means he has a lot of fans, right? What about the people that were closest to him? What about the people that were closest to him? It's, it seems like it's, there's Christian entertainment these days, especially in the form of podcasts, to really just like look at a, a really prominent ministry and then just flame, like tell the story of it, how it comes flaming and crashing down. So the rise and fall of so-and-so, the rise and fall of this church, the rise and fall of this ministry. And it seems to be like that's, that's kind of our new form of entertainment as Christians. Like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to cancel Disney, but I'm going to watch, you know, I'm going to watch this. And I, I, I don't care either way. If that's, if that's your thing, cool. Let's talk about it later. But, um, but what's, the, what's the kind of the common denominator? It's like there's these huge, uh, the, the, these huge growths of ministries. And then the closer and closer you, you get to those ministries, it seems like it's being run by someone that isn't like Jesus at all. Right? Like that's what we're seeing in our cultural moment is that we're creating empires around people, not around Jesus. And then whenever that person falls, that guy or girl falls, the whole thing falls. The whole thing falls. Is that true with Jesus? Is that true with Jesus? It's not so at all. The closest people to Jesus were the most devout followers. The closer they got to Jesus, the more they said, this man is pure this man is beautiful. This man, this man, I can't get enough of. Uh, Peter, James, John, the big three, the big three that were closest to him, all died martyrs' deaths for him. He said, I'll go to the grave for him. How many would be willing to do that for all these different ministries that are falling down? Not, none. He, he is so powerful that he transforms cultures and he transforms individuals, even those that are closest to him. In Jesus, whenever the, the closer we get to him, the more we see that he combines virtues that we, we hoped that we had. We hoped that we had. He was so tender and yet mightily powerful. He was strong and yet he was never, he wasn't harsh. He was filled with humility, but yet he was totally self-assured. He was holy yet approachable. He had ultimate authority, but not a speck of pride. He destroyed the proud, and yet he welcomed the, the brokenhearted. This man, who was this man? Was he a lunatic? Was he a devil? Of course not. Come on. He's way too attractive for that. He's way too attractive to that. When they looked at Jesus, when the apostles looked at Jesus, they said, this is the Son of God who's, with, who's worth giving everything for. Worth giving everything for. So that only leaves us one option, right? If he wasn't a lunatic, if he wasn't, if he wasn't a devil, if he wasn't just a good teacher, then he had to be the Christ. He had to be Lord. He has to be Lord. But here's the thing. Even if we go through this argument, if we go through this argument and get to the place where we say, yes, he is the Christ, is this going to transform us? Is this going to make, a, is this gonna make us uh, fall on our knees and worship him? Because Tim Keller says this, Tim Keller says, a lack of evidence can destroy faith, but strong evidence cannot produce faith. See what he's saying? 
A lack of evidence can destroy faith. So if we don't have a good argument that Jesus is who he actually says he is, that could destroy faith. However, if we, we present the, the most airtight argument of who Jesus is, that he actually was the, the, the resurrected son of God, who, who lived the perfect life, died the death that you deserve to die, rose again from the dead, does that, does that mean that's going to produce perfect faith within you? Is that how our human hearts work? If we just hear evidence that, hey, diet and exercise is actually really good for you. It's like, oh, diet and exercise is actually really good for you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to always diet and always exercise. Is that how our, <laughs> is that how our uh, hearts work? Of course not. Of course not. We need, we, need this to, we need this to penetrate the depths of who we are. Just a good argument isn't enough. It's not enough to produce faith. It's not, it's not enough to produce life change within us. So let me present a couple of ways that I want this truth, the magnitude of who Jesus is, to penetrate the depths of your heart. Let me just give, a, give us three. Let, it, let me give us three so that we can work this in so that our life can revolve around revolve around that Jesus indeed is the Christ, the, 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 the God of everything. So number one, number one, in the, truth, in the truth claims we see about Jesus, you have to see that Jesus demands everything or nothing. He demands that you are all in. He demands that you are all in or all out. There is no moderation with Jesus. Look at me. There is no middle ground moderation with Jesus. You are either all in with him or he says you are all out. You are all out. There was a division among the people over him. Jesus divides people, but Jesus didn't bore anyone. When they saw the reality of who he was, they had to drill down and say, oh, he's, he can't be a good moral teacher because of all the things that he's saying. He has to be the Christ or we have to kill him. These were the two things that Jesus left open. And if, listen to me, if you think in this room, it's like, well, man, I'm just kind of bored with him. I am just kind of bored with him. I, I want to say this very humbly, but directly. I want you to consider, do you know the real him? Do you know the real him? Are you seeing him in purity? Are you seeing him in pure light? Are you seeing him the way that he manifested himself to the people whenever he was walking on this earth? Or have you made up your own Jesus? Who just want, who, who's, comfortable, who's comfortable with you treating him as just a good moral teacher? Just, just, just a guy that wants you to go to church, throw some money in the offering basket whenever it get, gets passed around and stuff like that. Or, or do you see him for who he truly is, where you have to bow down and worship, worship him? You see, Jesus had, did not establish a religion like any other religion. He didn't establish religion like any other religion. All other religions are basically the exact same thing. There's the mountain, and I got to get up that mountain. Here's the code. Here's the steps. Here's the manual. Get up that mountain. Christianity is totally different. Christianity says, here's the mountain. This is where God is. You can't do it, but Jesus will come down and carry you up the mountain. That's the difference. That's the difference. That's what he was setting up. In, in, in order for you to be carried up the mountain, guess what? You have to submit everything to him. You have to allow. You, you, you can't say, no, Jesus, I got this. I got this. He goes, you don't get up the mountain that way. You only get up the mountain if I pick you up and I carry you myself. 
if I pick you up and I carry you myself. You see, what happens uh, in verse 41 and 42, they make some assumptions about Jesus. They make some assumptions about Jesus. Let me read it. Others said that this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem in the village where David was from? Look, you see what happened right there? They're looking at Jesus, and they're making assumptions about him. They're like, oh, Jesus, where's he from? Oh, he's from the Galilean region. Oh, okay. Well, then he can't be the Christ, because the Christ comes from Bethlehem. And so you know what they do? They just dismiss everything about Jesus based on false assumptions about him. And I tell you what, if you're bored with Jesus right now, you have fallen into the exact same trap. You have, make, you have made some assumption about Jesus that is not actually true. Jesus actually was from Bethlehem. He actually was from, from the place where they knew the scripture said that the, 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 the Christ would come from. But they didn't, they didn't care enough about it to investigate. They didn't, they didn't want to grapple with the magnitude of his claims to be God. They didn't want to grapple with the magnitude that he is the Christ. And because they didn't want to grapple with all those things, guess what? They left him by the wayside and they said, I guess we'll just find our own way. They didn't submit. They didn't submit everything over to the lordship of Jesus. And so Jesus says, hey, if you want to follow me, you're either all in or you're all out. You're either saying this is the Christ or you're saying crucify him because I don't care to hear any more about this. Kill him. And you make him dead to yourself. The second thing, the second thing that we got to drill deep down into our hearts is this, is that if Jesus really was who he says he was, then morality is not enough. Morality is not enough. We like to treat Jesus like the prophet or the leader of of all other religions, but Jesus doesn't leave that open to us. He doesn't say, let me show you the way. He goes, I am the way. He doesn't say, let me show you the truth. He says, I am the truth. And he doesn't say, this is, this is where the light is. He says, I am the light. The, the end road is me. What you're getting out of all of this is me. You're not going to heaven someday. You're not going to heaven someday wanting to see the streets of gold, wanting to see one of your deceased relatives, wanting to see uh, Moses or Elijah. You're going to heaven someday because you say, I want Jesus. Is that your primary motivation? Because that's the only thing that he's le- leading us to. He's saying morality is not enough. And it's very common today, right? It's very common today to say, well, you know what? I'm a tolerant person. I'm a tolerant person. And really what God wants is he just wants us all to be really devout. And so I would never say that a devout Muslim, if they follow the, uh, the, the tenets of Islam, is going to hell. How, man, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound loving. I would never say that a, a devout um, Buddhist is, is going to hell because, that, you know what, to each their own. They have to find their own truth. They have to find it. They have to discover it. And really, always, always lead up the, to the same mountain, which is God. It's very, very tolerant to say that. But Jesus does not leave that open to us. He doesn't leave that open to us. And if, if you're in this room and that is your, your sentimental view, that really all roads are leading to the same thing, you really just need devotion, you're saying that morality actually is enough. Morality is enough. But the central claim of Christ, the central cra- claim of Christianity is this, 
is that God's morality demands perfection. He demands your holiness. You must be holy, holy, holy to see a holy, holy, holy God. So how is this going to happen? Because in verse 19, look at our text. Verse 19 says this, Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. What's our hope? Jesus claims that none of us keeps the law. And you say, Cody, I, no, I'm... Are you saying... I, I, I get this, from, this illustration from David Platt. Are you saying that if there was a devout man who loved his creator in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea... If there was a devout man who loved his creator with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength all the days of his life, and if there was a devout man who didn't know the law of God, didn't read the Bible, but to the best of his ability, to perfectly held to the golden rule, which was essentially this, uh, that I should love my neighbor as myself. Are you saying that that perfect man who loved God with all of his heart and who loved people with all of his heart, is that man going to hell? You know what? I grant it. If, that, if there's a perfect man in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, and he is absolutely perfect, and he has never disobeyed the law, yes, yes, he's going to see Jesus face to face someday, even though he doesn't know the name of Jesus. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. That man doesn't exist. There is no perfect man there is no perfect man. There is no perfect woman who is following the law of God perfectly. If, if that were the case, then Jesus is a liar. And then we should leave here because right here he says this, yet none of you keeps the law. None of you keeps the law of God perfectly. That man does not exist. Your morality isn't enough. What you need is you need someone to keep the law of God perfectly for you. And who loves you enough, listen to me, who loves you enough to say, I, I love them so much, I will be their substitute. So whatever they deserve based on their sin, credit it to my account. Whether that's death and eternal hell forever, that's what we need. We need that kind of substitute. We need someone holy enough to stand flat-footed before God and to say, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. And what we have in the gospel is that. No one, no, none keeps the law. And, and Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, 21, he says that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and you are justified not by your works, but by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not good enough. He's good enough though. You're, you're not, you don't love God. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. He loved his neighbor as himself. With you in mind, by the way, every time he did. Isn't this amazing? What we need, what we need is a substitute in our place. Do you see the centrality of Christ in all things right here? That, that Christ is the one that we ultimately sinned against. Christ is the one who forgives us. Christ is the one who lived perfectly. Christ is the one who died in our place. Christ is the one that settles the, the wrath of God against our account. And Christ is the way to salvation. Christ is the justifier. Christ is the reason why we stand just before God. Everything revolves around him. We don't need morality. We need mercy. We need mercy to declare that Christ is, is Jesus. They declare that Jesus is the Christ. 
Morality or morality is not enough. What's the third thing we need? The last thing that we need in order for this to penetrate our hearts. The first thing, it's either all or nothing with Jesus. You, you got you to decide, okay, because Jesus is the Christ, it is all or nothing, and that my morality and my goodness is not enough. And number three, you have to beware of your own biases whenever you are investigating the claims of Christ. Beware of your own biases whenever you are investigating the claims of Jesus. Every week, every week, whenever we gather here, we're opening up the word of God and we're trying to declare it. We're trying to, we're trying to read it. But also we have different groups all throughout our church, all throughout our church that are opening up the word of God during the week and, and trying to understand what, what it's saying and, what it, and, and how we can apply it to our lives. And dear friends, Dear friends, if you're in this room and you're saying, you know what, I need to investigate the claims of Jesus. I, need to, I actually need to come to a conclusion about who Jesus of Nazareth actually was. My, my greatest encouragement to you as you are investigating, investigating the claims of Christ is beware, your, beware of your own biases. And the best way you can do that is by getting involved in a, with a group of people that are opening the Bible and reading it every week together. This is, uh, this is the best way that you can do it. This is the trajectory of all of our gospel communities. The trajectory of all of our gospel communities or small groups, if you're brand new to Redeemer, is this, is that we want to start a Bible reading movement within Wichita Falls. A Bible reading movement where we're saturated in the word of God and we're bringing people in, those that are far from God, and helping them explore and invest, investigate the claims of Jesus. Investigate the claims of Jesus, because look what Jesus says whenever we look at his word together. In John chapter 7, verse 18, it says, The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood at all. Have you looked at the claims of this Jesus? Have you looked at the claims of Jesus? Or are, have you heard some of the truth of the gospel? And then you've contextualized and treated the Bible like a, like a salad like a salad bar. Said, I like a little bit of this and a little bit of this and no more. He doesn't leave that open to you. And your biases get in the way. Get in the way of this. My poppy, who's with the Lord now, and uh, I was very blessed to, to have a, a grandpa like this. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, but he was a, kind of a, he was funny, but he was kind of quiet. And he'd often, whenever we did family gatherings, he would go off. He'd go off and sit, off, sit by himself. And I, I, I think I know what he was doing, but oftentimes it was kind of confusing. Sometimes we thought he was sad. But I think he had such a close relationship with Jesus that whenever we'd get together as a family, he would just kind of sit around. And I think he'd go and meet with the Lord and just say thank you. Thank you for the way that um, God had blessed him whenever he saw all his family. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because oftentimes, I'm his only grandson. And so, my mama would oftentimes say, Cody. <laughs> That's how she talks. Um, <laughs> Cody, go out there and see what CT's doing. <laughs> and I was, yes, ma'am. And I would go. And during those times, I would have the most in-depth conversations about his love and devotion of Jesus. And he would tell me about what he was reading, what he was studying, and 
And I miss, I miss those times. But he read the Bible every single day for like 60 years. He was one of those weirdos that woke up at like 3.30 in the morning. And he had a Bible that would almost, like if, if I had it with me, it would almost fall apart in my hands. It was dirty and nasty. I was like, wash your hands before you read it. <laughs> and, but he had it for so long. He had it for so long. He loved and craved the word of God. And as an 80-year-old man, as an 80-year-old man, he didn't get tired of boasting in the Lord. Why, why say any of this? Why say any of this? Because I want you to get in touch with the word of God. Because I've seen what it does over a lifetime. I've seen the heart transformation that it does over a lifetime. Get into the Bible. Do not, do not say, you know what? I got politics figured out. I, I got this figured out. I got, I got my sexuality figured out. I got all these things. And if I see something in the Bible, I don't really care. I don't really care because I've already got my worldview figured out. And so I'll just read the Bible in the way that it reinforces my worldview. Don't do that. Read it and, and go on a journey to where it takes you wherever the text takes you. Because what it will do is it will make you more like Jesus. It will absolutely make you more like Jesus. It will transform your heart. It will make you be just like him. It will turn you into someone that is strong, yet very, very tender. It will turn you into someone that's powerful but not harsh. It will turn you into someone that is humble, but yet has total assurance of salvation. Someone that is holy, yet very approachable. Someone that is confident, but yet not filled with pride. You see what the Bible does whenever it washes over you? It makes you like Jesus. It makes you like Jesus. And if he really is the Christ, and he is, and he is, then shouldn't we humble ourselves and say, what does this book declare about him? And then shouldn't we devote ourselves to it? Be absolutely devoted to it? And look around at the people that we're sitting next to and the people that we, that we um, belong to in our gospel community and just say, how can we search these scriptures and have it penetrate the depths of our heart and transform us and change us? Because this is what he wants. This is what he wants. He doesn't want your moral conformity. He wants your heart. He wants you to be like him. He wants to give you the life that you really want for yourself, which is to be more like Jesus. Think about it. Think about it. Let me conclude with this. C.S. Lewis uh, ends his little exhortation this way by, by saying this. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Is this your view? Is this your view, Redeemer Church and our guest? May we have everything revolve around that truth then. Let's pray.